Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3. This is the word of God. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its intense detail. The fact that we can study your word for a lifetime and not plumb its depths. Thank you for this. Open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. The year was 1997. The annual Masters Professional Golf Tournament was being held at Augusta National down in Georgia where it's held every year, and a 21-year-old newly minted golfer was making birdie after birdie, attacking pins that were never meant to be attacked, ending up winning the tournament on Sunday by a whopping and record-setting 12 strokes with a final score of 18 under par. It was amazing to watch. And yes, I have it on DVD if you want to watch it. Twelve years and 13 major championship wins later, that now 33-year-old golfer's life came crashing down as it became clear that the man was not who we thought he was. This was in 2009. He now had to go back and lay a new foundation for a new life after it became clear that he was missing some foundational fundamentals for a healthy lifestyle. The frustration that I felt personally and the golfing world as we watched this man's life crumble around him is similar to what the author of Hebrews here, I think, probably felt as he encourages them to grow. He probably felt disbelief, frustration, some disappointment, But the author, as we see here and as we'll get into, is still rooting for these Hebrew believers to get where they should have been for these last several years. 
just as many will be rooting for Tiger when he returns from his most recent set of injuries. The author of Hebrews has finished explaining in early chapter 5 and in chapter 4 how Jesus is greater than Moses, how he can give us a better rest than Moses or Joshua, and how Jesus as a priest can identify with us humans because he suffered as a human. And just as he's about to really dig in to the richness of the imagery of Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood, he has to stop himself. He has to say, oh, wait a second. They're not going to get this. And then he rebukes them for not being able to get it, because they should be able to. This morning's text is a call to continued growth in the gospel, a call to not linger in the familiar, but to press on to understanding the greater principles of the gospel, to understand them better. You know, the Bible, I am finding this out, is beautiful. Its gospel is a stunning work of art. It's a tapestry woven more intricately than the most detailed works of art. And the closer you look at it, the more beautiful it becomes. The more you examine it, the more you realize how complex and interwoven it is. It's like observational science. When you're like, yeah, trees are nice. And then you start to say, well, trees, the bark is kind of cool. And then you start to understand, oh, the different rings have different significance. And the leaves and the buds, the more you study it, the more complex you understand that it is and the more beautiful it is to you. This is how people explain how they feel about their spouses. It's not how people explain how they feel about their favorite novel or their favorite sport or political philosophy. We're to be motivated to grow in our understanding of Scripture by a sense of awe and wonder, among other things. A sense of appreciating a story as a work of art that was thousands of years in the making, whose minute details only enhance its great beauty. Of this story, God is the subject, and we are the object of this thousands of years old story. He pursues us, you and me, through this interwoven story. The author of Hebrews is very familiar with this beauty, and you can sense his frustration and incredulity at his readers when he rebukes them for still being immature, for having to hold back wonderful points and wonderful truths that he eventually does dive into in chapter 7. As his, uh, as his rebuke comes, he, he breaks it up into three parts initially. This is point, uh, point one in your outline. Each of these points highlight a different way in which the, the hearers have failed to mature spiritually. The first rebuke is that they are students rather than teachers. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
This group of Hebrews still needed to learn the elementary principles of faith. They needed to hear the basics again. They were way behind where they should be. They should have been already teaching others. They probably should have been teaching advanced concepts to other people. But because of their laziness, because of their dullness of hearing, because of their failure to pay attention, they need to be taught again. You know, at the beginning of the COVID lockdowns a year ago, after our gym and coffee shops and everything else had closed down, uh, we ordered some exercise equipment to our house. And as you know, that stuff can be heavy, and FedEx doesn't like to deliver super heavy stuff. So a big semi-truck comes and offloads your stuff by pallet, comes shipped by freight. And uh, it's a little embarrassing um, on your street, Um, But it was very exciting for me, not because of what was being delivered necessarily, but because freight deliveries are covered by Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code. (laughs) And commercial transactions was one of my favorite classes in law school. So when I laid eyes on the bill of lading, I was in full geek-out mode. I knew all the implications of accepting delivery, under what conditions I could reject and what would happen if, when, if I failed to sign the documents? And just as I was all jazzed up about this, I had no one to tell. <laughs> I had no one to tell about it because no one's as big a dork about the UCC <laughs> as I am. And that feeling is probably what the, the author of Hebrews, along with mixed disappointment and frustration, he, he's so excited about the Melchizedekian priesthood. And he gets there and he is warming up for it. And he's laid a foundation and then, oh, he can't say anything. Because they're dull of hearing. And they wouldn't get it. The author's next rebuke is that they are babies rather than adults. Look with me at verses 12b and 13. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. They still require milk. They can't digest solid food. They're not growing. Their development has been arrested. They can't digest steak. They can't even chew steak. They're like little babies. And they need to be nursed with the elementary principles of the gospel again until they begin to cut their teeth. You know, any of us with kids know the rainbow nightmare of the first two years of life. Babies are really cute, but they don't sleep through the night. There's constant change. You have to cover your power outlets and gate your stairs. You know, they don't understand you and you can't understand them. Every moment contains some amount of worry about mortal danger intermixed with moments of indescribable love for this little person that you can't even have a conversation with yet. I can remember when Shana and I wished those first couple years would move a little quicker, if for no other reason than the constant threats of physical danger that we were neutralizing, especially because of our firstborn. We didn't know. We didn't know that SIDS is very rare, but we're up, up at night worrying about SIDS. But as any parent will tell you, it's worth the worry. It's worth the work. Because soon they'll 
grow up into toddlers. And those little toddlers will grow up into youngsters and adolescents. They'll begin to understand what you do for a living sometimes. <laughs> they'll, they'll understand what a mortgage is, how to manage their time and tasks. And they're building on those fundamental building blocks that you taught them as a baby and toddler. How to avoid danger and how to seek success. It's a special privilege to watch children grow. And just as we know the expected course of human physical development and what to watch for, the author of Hebrews knows the expected course of spiritual development, and he's not seeing it. Just as it's disturbing for us to see a 10-year-old nursing at his mother, It's equally disturbing for the author here to see the arrested spiritual development of these Hebrews. The third metaphor the author uses here is that they're amateurs rather than pros. Look at verse 14. But, uh, let's see. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The Hebrews had neglected their practice. They were no more skilled than when they began and first learned of the gospel. You know, writer and researcher Malcolm Gladwell has popularly theorized that in order to become a professional at something, or perhaps even the best in the world, you need to spend at minimum 30,000 hours doing that thing. 30,000 hours of practice. And that's an astronomical number, but if if that's six hours every day with no breaks on weekends or anything, that's 13 years, eight months of practice. These Hebrews should have been pros by this time. Maybe not 30,000 hour pros, but they should have been well along their way. But they can't even distinguish good from evil. A quick note here before we move on. Everyone's been there. Everyone has been a student. Everyone has been a baby. Everyone's been an amateur. Spiritually and, uh, and, and otherwise. If you are a new Christian or a very young person, listen to your lesson as a student. Drink your milk as a baby. And keep practicing to become a pro. The problem with these Hebrews is that they had been babies for so long. But we all need to crawl before we can walk, and all babies are supposed to crawl. But once their kneecaps ossify and turn into bone, you should be walking upright. Point two in your outline is recap of foundational beliefs. These Jewish believers had three main areas of doctrine that were considered the pillars of Christian belief in the early Hebrew church. These are areas in which new Jewish believers needed instruction particularly because they were tied to existing Jewish traditions which they would have been familiar with. There would have been overlap or conflict in these areas specifically. These areas were repentance from dead works and faith in God, washing and laying on of hands, and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There are six things. They've been grouped by, by most commentators into those three sections. 
All these were, were very important for Jewish believers to learn as a foundation of Christian belief. So first, let's look at repentance from dead works and faith in God. So over the span of, of church history, there are at least two, I'm sure I'm missing many more, but there were at least two instances where repentance from dead works and faith in God needed to be restated. When God's people had looked at his word and saw only rules and thought works were the most important thing. They became so focused on following all, the, all these rules that in their zeal, they made supplementary rules. Safe harbor rules. Okay, if we follow the safe harbor rules, we're definitely not going to violate God's main rules. And these two periods, you may have guessed, were 16th century Catholic Church and the period during Jesus' ministry. First century, uh, first century Jewish thought had made all these rules. And that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had made these extra rules, and Jesus rebuked them for that. But they'd completely missed personal faith in God and repentance from dead works. And this was especially true for Christians in the first century who were coming out of Judaism, which is why he brings this up. It's foundational to the gospel. We cannot, we cannot close the gap between us and God. We cannot, a person can't buy themselves out of slavery. We can't reconcile our relationship to God. Listen to what Paul writes in, uh, in Galatians 5, 1 to 6. He's talking about circumcision here, but when I read circumcision, hear Jewish law, because that's his way of referring to it in this, uh, in this instance. For freedom, Galatians 5, 1 to 6, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you do this, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This isn't the only place that Paul mentions this. He mentions it many times in the book of Romans, but there's, for, for the sake of time, we'll move on. Repentance from dead works and faith in God, absolutely foundational. And the Hebrew believers had to keep hearing this. They had to continue to get this down. They wanted to go back to Jewish traditions and practices. And the author of Hebrews warns them that they're at serious risk if they don't grow past this. Repentance from dead works and faith in God can be categorized as soteriology. I've pointed out in your, in your bulletins. The doctrine of salvation. How how people are saved, the mechanism through which they are saved. It contains all the salvation metaphors we're used to hearing. Redemption, reconciliation, adoption, courtroom justification, propitiation. It's crucial to understand how we are saved. 
what matters to that process and what doesn't. The author here then mentions, he goes on the, the second, uh, second area here, pneumatology 101. He mentions the washing and laying on of hands as a foundational doctrine for those first century Jewish believers. Again, these are areas where these Hebrew believers were used to Jewish practices of washing, purification rites, and laying on of hands. The laying on of hands likely refers to the transfer of guilt to a sacrificial animal. They would have received teaching between the differences between Jewish ceremonial rites and ceremonial purification and baptism. And they would, have, uh, they would have received teaching about the laying on of hands and the transfer of guilt and the transfer of guilt to Christ. You know, the, there are a lot of ceremonial laws in the Torah. And some of these would have been difficult for these Jewish believers to part with because it's not just a part of their religion, it was a part of their culture. It's fair to assume that these Jewish believers weren't just going to up and move once they had faith in Christ. They still had to live in a Jewish culture. They still had Jewish friends and Jewish practices. It was pretty difficult. And it's been mentioned in prior weeks, but these Hebrew believers were at risk of falling back into Judaism. One of the reasons they were at risk of falling back into Judaism was that Judaism was an accepted religion within the Roman world. Within the Roman Empire, you had to worship the, empire, uh, the emperor. If you didn't worship the emperor, it was, you were killed. It was capital punishment. And so Judaism had been accepted from this, but Christianity had not been. So if you left the Jewish community to a new religion to a new faith, you were, you were taking your life in your own hands. Getting back to the washing and laying on of hands here. Um, washings probably referred to the differences between ceremonial purification rites and the, right, the one-time rite of baptism as new believers in the new covenant. He probably wanted to, the, uh, the author here probably wanted a deep dive here, but he only kind of skims the surface. He only refers to this as, yeah, there are differences, and you've already learned these differences. But I'm sure that he wanted to look at what Christ taught his disciples when he washed their feet in John 13. You remember Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, and Peter popped up and said, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me if this is what I need to be pured. I'll read that passage in a second. They have been washed fully already, as is signified by baptism. That is the initial washing. And they don't need to be fully bathed, as Peter suggested. All they need to do after they've been washed, signified by baptism, is that they need for their feet to be periodically cleansed. This is us when we confess our sins to one another. We pick up the dirt and dust and garbage of the world on our feet as we walk through a sinful world. And we must constantly confess our failures and accept 
the humbling foot washings of Jesus. And as we confess our sins to him and others, he instructed his disciples to wash each other's feet. Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. This is in John 13. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. We're to confess our sins to one another and wash one another's feet. We're to bear one another's burdens. And all these layers are bound up in this principle of baptism. This is something I'm sure the author of Hebrews would have loved to continue to expound and teach on, encouraging them to encourage one another, encouraging them to confess their sins to one another, to help each other. But he couldn't get there. Because they were dull of hearing. With respect to the laying on of hands, commentator Johnson notes that the difference between the constant sin offerings between, uh, in Judaism, where guilt was transferred to the goat by a laying on of hands, as described in Leviticus 16, and the one-time transfer of our guilt to Christ, Christ being our sacrifice our sacrificial lamb, has taken our guilt in the same way the goat bore the guilt in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. But these Hebrew believers had only learned the initial differences between these areas of purification rites and baptism, laying on of hands. They, didn't, they couldn't fully grasp this. They knew that, okay, Jesus is the new sacrifice, all right. But they couldn't dig any deeper than that. Third, uh, under point two, Resurrection of the dead, eschatology number uh, 101. These new believers had a glimpse of eschatology, beliefs about the end times. They had been taught that there would be a resurrection and that there would be a final judgment. Keep in in mind there was an entire camp of belief uh, among Jewish leadership at the time that there was no resurrection. This was the Sadducees' position. That there was no resurrection, this life is all there is. The Sadducees were the leaders of that group, and the Pharisees believed there would be a resurrection. There was a conflict. There, there wasn't a clear Jewish point of view there. But the new Hebrew believers t- were taught rightly that there will be a resurrection, and that Christ was the pioneer of that resurrection for all who put their trust in him. Christ's rising from the dead, as we'll celebrate next week, was identified as the first fruits of resurrection. He defeated death, and we can share in that victory over death if, of course, we could trust in Christ. Moving along, uh, point three in your outline is remonstrance to mature. Now, this isn't exactly the right word, remonstrance. I had to look it up. I thought it was the right word. It's not exactly, but it starts with an R and it's close enough. So So after his fairly blunt rebuke of the Hebrew believers, the author turns to a gentle encouragement. He says, let's leave these elementary doctrines and go on to maturity. He He uses that term that we all kind of default to when we're trying to encourage someone. Okay, come on, let's go. Let's do this. He includes himself in it. And he's trying to soften what he probably felt was, uh, was pretty blunt. 
This is a repeated command to leave the elementary doctrines and go on to maturity by almost every New Testament author. This is further proof that we are not to just believe once and go on living the same. That we're to believe once and attend church and not learn anything new and not grow. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul encourages Timothy and us to train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. A few verses later, we read, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that you all may see Oh, so that all may see your progress. 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This renewal won't happen without our knowledge or participation. We must be disciplined to pay attention to the word of God and to grow. Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this, Paul writes, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even the Apostle Paul continues to press on, late in his life, into his old age. There's no point in this life where we will exhaust all the wonders of the gospel and appreciate all the glory of the word of God. Amen? Peter writes, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that By it, you may grow up into salvation. Peter encourages new believers to long for that milk. But not so they can drink the milk forever. So by the milk, they may grow up into salvation. Peter wants his audience and us to love the word of God, to long for it. To love the gospel and to mature to deeper principles that Peter has come to love himself. He also writes in 2 Peter 3, You, beloved, therefore knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge. Luke writes, Jesus Uh, Luke records Jesus' stern warning against spiritual laziness. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 18, Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Commentators seem to agree that Jesus isn't actually talking about Possessions, and he's not talking about the inequities of society. He's talking about faith. To the one who has faith 
If he is attentive, be careful how you hear, he says, more faith will be given to him. If he listens closely to the word of life, he will grow in faith. But to him who does not have true faith and doesn't value the word of life and doesn't listen carefully, even the appearance of faith will be taken away from him. He won't even be able to pass for a Christian. He's not growing and even his appearance of faith will be destroyed. So take care how you listen to the word of God. Finally, John recorded in Revelation chapter 3 what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea. This is Jesus speaking as recorded by John. I know your works, church of Laodicea, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I don't need anything. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness and it may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Doesn't this sound like the American church today? We're rich. We're prosperous. We need nothing. We're comfortable. We don't feel pressure or the need to grow spiritually. But if we stagnate, if we lose our heat and become lukewarm... We're in mortal danger, as we will hear from Lars in a couple weeks. Okay, hopefully by now you are convinced that it is a biblical command to grow and that we are encouraged by almost every New Testament author to grow. If you're not growing, it is a serious and urgent problem. So, how do you grow? What's next? Here are seven things that you can do practically in today's environment that you can do to grow spiritually. These aren't mine. I'll I'll credit Alex Strauch with with um, most of these. First of all, I'll get to... I'm going to skip ahead and then skip back. I want to say as a note here, chapter 6, verse 3 of our passage says, we will do this if God permits. We will grow if, if the Lord wills. In order for us to grow, we first have to be disciplined. We have to want to grow. But above all, the growth in us is performed by the Holy Spirit. We cannot grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus without the Spirit's enablement and God's will. If you don't feel like you want to grow, if you feel spiritually stagnant, ask God for the desire to grow. James wrote that if you ask for wisdom, he will give it to you. And if you ask for growth, truly, you will see it. Okay, seven things you can do practically. First, pray. Ask God for the desire to grow and for the discipline to grow. So practically, number one, I've left you a lot of room to take notes here under under point three. Number one on this, protect your prayer life. 
Protect your time to devote yourself to prayer. Acts 6.4 said that the, the apostles were devoted to prayer. Is that how someone would describe you today? <laughs> Is Joe devoted to prayer? I'm preaching all of these to myself this morning. So I need all of them. Number two, protect your time for Bible reading. Guess what happens if you don't protect your time for Bible reading? It won't happen. You won't read your Bible. If you don't have dedicated time to read the Word, you'll have to fit the Word into the nooks and crannies of your day. And when you arrive at those nooks and crannies, you're like, I've got 15 minutes. Guess what you're going to do? You're not going to sit down and read the Bible. You're not going to do something that you're supposed to do. You're going to scroll through social media. You're going to make yourself a snack. You're going to sit down and decompress. Maybe you'll pray a little bit, which is great. But if you don't have dedicated time to read the Bible, it won't happen. Pick a time that's best for you. For me, it's first thing in the morning, first time, you know, first few minutes of my day. As soon as I wake up. Protect your time for Bible reading. Number three, read or listen to significant books. People who know me best know that I won't shut up about Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on Romans 3 and 4. I won't shut up about John Stott's Cross of Christ. And the, the latest thing I won't shut up about is Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lily, which many of you are reading. But the books that, that will contribute to your spiritual growth don't have to be spiritual books necessarily. One of the most interesting and encouraging books I read in 2018 was Walter Isaacson's biography of Albert Einstein. Einstein, as you know, was a European Jew living in Europe during the 1930s. And he fled Europe leading up to World War II and the Nazi party coming to power. Einstein contributed probably more to the field of physics than anyone else in in the 20th century. I don't think there's any dispute about that. But reading, after reading the story of his life, I discovered there were two reasons for this. Now, Walter Isaacson was not a Christian. He's not a Jew, I don't think. Um, this was kind of just a secular account of, of Einstein's life. But it became apparent that, first, there were two reasons that Einstein was so smart. And if I'm wrong, Doug Beeson, come talk to me and correct me. Um, but first, God gave him an incredible mind. I mean, he had the raw material, and he, nur- and he nurtured it. And uh, he just had the raw intellect to be able to discern these things. The way he visualized and communicated concepts was in, way ahead of his time. Second, the second reason was that he was, he was looking for a design as he was discovering he was able to dismiss ideas that didn't fit what he knew about God. He knew God's design would be surprising and wonderful, not chaotic and confusing. And at that, at that point of view led him to the discoveries of the theories of specific and general relativity and many other things, without which we wouldn't have things like GPS. We wouldn't have a, things like a, a Mars rover. So read or listen to significant books. Fourth, go to good conferences. 
The Gospel Coalition's annual conference is coming up in Indianapolis. There's a women's conference and then a men's conference. You can stream the whole conference uh, from home this year. It's like 90 bucks. You get a bunch of books mailed to you. It's a terrific conference. If you feel more comfortable going uh, there or going to other conferences, you you can stream Ligonier's conference. That was last week. You can go to Together for the Gospel. I think they're going to hold it this year or next year. Go to Shepherd's Conference. Go listen to people whose lives are committed to furthering the understanding of the gospel. And be with other groups who want to grow. And I promise you, you'll be encouraged. You know, along with this is number five. Listen to audio messages. We live in a time now where you can listen to any preacher, almost any, any preacher who was ever recorded. You can probably have access to them. So this goes back to even the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. You can listen to Tim Keller out of New York. John MacArthur out in California. The late R.C. Sproul, who was a tremendous intellect. John Piper. You can find sermons by topic, by passage of scripture. Innumerable resources at our fingertips to encourage you on your commute, while you're having breakfast, while you're doing laundry. I don't bring this point up, and I don't bring any of these points up, to guilt you into doing more. I know that we are all busy. If you were to ask any of us in here, I think there's probably a 90% chance, if you were to ask somebody, how are you doing? Number one answer, busy. <sighs> so busy. This week was crazy busy. The last month, the last, oh my gosh, my entire life has been busy. So I don't bring this up to say you should do something else. But before you commit to that next thing, think about whether you're already doing the most important things. Number six, raise your consciousness about the world around you. It's important to stay informed about the events in the news so you can relate to your neighbors, you relate to your friends and people on calls. But it's important to stay informed about international events particularly so that you know how to pray for our missionaries. You know, if you read the news yesterday uh, or or this morning, you would have seen that the uh, government of Myanmar, which just underwent a, a coup, a military coup, there's now military leaders, Uh, They killed dozens of people yesterday, dozens of protesters. And um, if you understand the circumstance there, you'll be able to pray better for the Sullivans as they contemplate going to the area. Read the news about Italy, the area surrounding Rome. You'll be more informed about our missionaries in, uh, in Italy, the Pasquales. So that's number six. Read the news. Lastly, number seven, watch for distractions. This goes hand in hand with what I was saying a minute ago. You know, the number one distraction in America has got to be either social media or the news. And I just told you to read the news, but um, some of you are saying, I get my news on social media. But just watch for distractions. Watch for things in life that are draining you, that are unnecessary. And that don't have any eternal value. 
you know, the, the pandemic has had us inside and isolated for such long periods of time. We've probably lost all sense of normalcy around screen time and what's healthy. And a lot of this time was during the winter where you couldn't really do anything else, couldn't go outside. But just be on your guard for distractions. Be on your guard for not stagnating spiritually. Always be growing. I saw a t-shirt from a fitness company. I was really going to wear this today, but they were out of stock. It just said in big, bold letters, don't weaken. I love that. It's a great reminder. Don't weaken. Don't stagnate. Don't become less familiar with the gospel. As you grow, your desire will grow. Your desire for growth, it will grow too. It'll eventually get to the moment where you'll have to overcome your desire to read the word, to do something more pressing or urgent. The author of Hebrews had to stop himself as he began to dive into the wonderful points of complexity of Scripture as we see in the similarities between Melchizedek, priest-king of Salem, which, by the way, means peace, and Jesus, priest-king of peace. He had to take this detour to check his audience's willingness and ability to hear that content, which we'll get into in chapter 7. But by the time we get there, don't be dull of hearing. Sharpen your skills of discernment in these coming weeks. Pray for attention. Pray for discipline. Examine your life and how you can rearrange your day to pray and to spend time in the Word. You don't want to miss the richness of the rest of this letter to the Hebrews. Let's pray. God, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your gospel, this story of you pursuing us over thousands of years. We see this story unfolding in different people's lives. We can look and see you, Christ, being signaled to us by David, who was a type of Christ, and Abraham, who was a type of Christ, and all these characters, Boaz, who was a redeemer as a type of Christ, The more we examine these things, the more we can find out about you, about your gospel, and even about us. Thank you for your precious, beautiful, complex, and wonderful word. Give us the passion to grow in it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.